Claire Walsh is a senior policy manager at JPAL Global. She is the head of JPAL's Government Partnership Initiative, a multi-million dollar fund she helped design that supports over 20 partnerships with governments to institutionalize the use of evidence and policy in over 10 countries worldwide. Please welcome Claire Walsh. It's such a pleasure to be with you all today. I feel like Vanna White. Anyway, uh, uh, so my name is Claire Walsh. I'm from the Poverty Action Lab at MIT. And I'm just so pleased to be with you all today. I think I've never been to a conference where people are more open and eager to help one another, and it's been an inspiration to be part of this community. Uh, so today, I'm here to talk to you about why at JPAL we're so excited about working with developing country governments to scale policies that are backed by rigorous evidence. And I think the really high leverage the effective altruism community has in helping developing country governments do what they're already trying to do, which is provide critical services for the poor um, much more effectively. So you're going to hear two perspectives on this topic today. It, Ophir and my talk look uh, quite similar, and that's not um, an accident. So I'm going to focus more on why at JPAL we think it's important to partner with developing country governments, some examples of the impact our government partners have had as a result of using evidence from RCTs to scale up programs, uh, and some factors that we think drove success. Whereas Ophir is going to think more critically about the theoretical justifications for this type of work uh, and some of the practical challenges and reasons why it may not be the best path to scale and how individual EAs can get involved in this type of work if they like. So why are the returns to working with governments potentially huge? Uh, the first is that they spend a lot of money on a lot of really low-income people. So if you think... Uh, over half of the people who live on less than a dollar or ninety a day today live in middle income countries where governments have vast social safety net programs and public health programs that are meant to reach the poorest of the poor. And if you take a look at this graph, it's just one illustration of this. It's public health spending in 2014 in India, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and South Asia. And what you'll notice is that uh, Public spending is quite large, and between 20 and 40 billion dollars in that year alone. Really disturbingly, out-of-pocket spending is also quite large on health. But if you look at external funding, foreign aid, I think the slice of the pie that EAs often think about working with or influencing, it's a much, much smaller portion of spending on health in general. So can we think about potentially working with governments to help them do what they're already trying to do, but do it much better? So we know that governments spend a lot of money. Do we know that there's room for improvement in how they spend it? So I think there is evidence of that. So uh, in some cases, governments spend money on ineffective things. That, of course, is not unique to governments. Uh, NGOs, private sector, social entrepreneurs um, don't always base decisions on evidence. One example of something that uh, governments tend to spend a lot of money on that doesn't really have evidence uh, that it improves the outcome they're trying to change is that a lot of education spending is on inputs like uh, additional classrooms, textbooks, uh, dropping computers into the classroom without changing pedagogy, block 
out grants to schools. And again and again, randomized control trials conducted in many countries around the world have shown that these actually don't have positive impacts on learning. And if you're interested in learning more about this, we have a cost-effectiveness analysis available on the JPAL website. Um, so even if they do pick a good program, it's not uncommon for implementation or delivery to be suboptimal or to be poor. Let's just take two examples of some of the largest social safety net programs in middle-income countries that are meant to get benefits into the hands of really, really low-income people. Uh, first, let's look at the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, quite a mouthful, MG and Regs. Uh, it's a workfare program for the poor where uh, anyone who wants can get up to 100 days of paid work doing manual labor and they can get wages from the government for it. It had 74 million beneficiaries in 2016, cost over $6 billion that year, and a recent household survey found that 20% of the money that it was supposed to be going to poor families in terms of wages wasn't actually reaching them. And another example of a huge program in Indonesia that's supposed to provide subsidized rice for the poorest 25% of the population, that's over 65 million people. Uh, the program costs $2 billion a year. And before um, J-PAL affiliated professors started working with the government in 2012, uh, eligible families were only receiving about one-third of their entitled subsidized rice, and the rest was lost to leakage or corruption. So that, this, these are some facts that illustrate that there could be room for improvement in terms of how governments are spending on anti-poverty programs. But you're probably asking yourself a very valid question, which is even if the returns are potentially huge, given the political and institutional constraints that uh, embedded in big bureaucracies in government, isn't there a much lower probability of success? Uh, and my first response is, like, yes, the challenges of working with governments are real, but um, as effective altruists, we would take these two cases equally. And if we are able to um, reach, reach many, many more people um, with a lower chance of success, it may be the same in expected returns to reach a small number of people at a much higher level of certainty. Um, but I don't want to undersell the challenges of working with governments. They're real. Um, in our experience, uh, we work directly with governments to evaluate their programs, to help them scale up things that RCTs have been found to be effective in the past. And there are just as many examples of governments not taking up evidence as we have examples of governments taking up evidence. And uh, that's for many reasons. Obviously, policymaking is not designed to select the option that does the good for the most people. It's often based on... Um, uh, private interests or um, political expediency or other factors that might be more important to uh, policymakers and their constituents rather than evidence. Um, and it, it is true that big bureaucracies tend to move more slowly and that governments don't always have the capacity uh, or the money to do research on what's effective or um, adopt things once they find what the effective things are. But I, I, I do think uh, that's uh, we don't want to apply that stereotype too widely because in JPAL's experience, there are governments who are committed to using data and evidence. Um, and it's not clear that these challenges, at least to me, are, are worse in governments than they would be in other institutions. Um, and I'll just share some examples of why we think some governments buck the trend. So why do we have anything to say about this? So uh, JPAL is a network of affiliated researchers, most 
mostly economists who are based at universities all around the world. They do randomized control trials of programs that are aimed at fighting poverty. Um, and we don't just do the research. Uh, we also have a team in which I'm a part of that is dedicated to ensuring that governments, NGOs, take the findings from that research and actually translate them into action, scaling up things that work or improving things that don't work. And because we have um, had a long-term presence since uh, the early 2000s in, in many different uh, middle-income countries and low-income countries, over time we've developed partnerships with over 30 national state and city governments who are committed to making evidence a more regular part of their decision-making process. And many of these government partnerships are funded by an initiative that I helped design and now run, the Government Partnership Initiative. We do three things. We help run RCTs and fund RCTs in partnerships with governments to answer a government's priority question, not a researcher's priority question, but in a case where a uh, government is interested in solving an important problem. They think they have a solution that might work to solve it, and they need evidence before um, allocating resources to it. We also uh, support things besides RCTs. We uh, help them use existing evidence to scale up something that's uh, worked in the past. Um, and then we also help them start their own institutions uh, that are designed to incorporate evidence and decision-making more systematically. So you may have heard of um, Behavioral Insights Team or the Social and Behavioral Sciences Team. It's very... Um, it an exciting movement among governments now is that they want to start evaluation labs or innovation funds that are dedicated to uh, supporting RCTs to test innovations and then scale up the ones that work. And so that's the type of thing that GPI supports. And why did we think that this was a good bet for JPAL to make um, in the first place? We've put a lot of resources into this in the past three years. What was the original inspiration for this? And I think it really came in 2013 2013 was our, our 10th year of existence, and uh, over those 10 years, uh, to both track our own influence and then to track our influence for our donors, we count up the number of people who are reached by scale-ups of programs that were originally evaluated in an RCT conducted by JPAL affiliated professors, and then scaled up by a partner NGO, government, etc. And, and we were quite surprised to find that of the 300 million people that have been reached, over 80% of them were reached by a government deciding to scale up a program, not an NGO. Um, and these scale-ups were implemented either solely by uh, governments or in close partnership between NGOs and governments. Okay, so let's get into some specific examples. Um, I want you to think back to that uh, social assistance program I mentioned earlier uh, called Raskin. It's a subsidized rice program for the poorest 25% of the population in Indonesia. It's supposed to reach about 65 million people, but as of 2012, only one-third of uh, this subsidy was actually reaching poor families, and the rest of it was getting redistributed to rich families or lost due to corruption. And in 2012, the vice president's office and the national team for the acceleration of poverty reduction came to JPAL, um, which has an office at the University of Indonesia, and said, 
hey, J. Powell, you know, we've worked with you a couple times before doing RCTs of our other social assistance programs. Can you help us uh, try to solve this particular problem? And what they wanted to test was whether giving eligible families identification cards that had the amount of subsidized rice that they were entitled to with the price that they were supposed to pay um, and making sure that the local officials who were uh, responsible for distributing the subsidized rice could only give it to families who had those ID cards. Um, could that give poor families greater bargaining power to get their entitled subsidy. And so this was their solution, and they came to us saying, you know, can you help produce rigorous evidence of whether this works or not, and can you do it in eight months? Because we need to know in time for the national budget discussion, which is happening at the end of this year. So uh, we sprang into action, and because JPAL Southeast Asia had operated in Indonesia for, you know, uh, five years prior to that, uh, we were able to set up a study quite quickly, and we did a randomized trial of this ID card intervention in 500 villages in a representative sample across Indonesia. And what we found uh, is that the ID card substantially increased uh, the amount of subsidized rice that the poor families received by 26%. And the one of the reasons why we were able to inform uh, the subsequent policy decision is that we did a survey that we would not otherwise have done had it been just a study for academic purposes, but because we were trying to answer a government's priority question, we did an, a midline survey earlier than we uh, usually would have to measure its impact in order to get the government the results um, in time to make this national budget decision. And because there was uh, substantial evidence that it worked, they decided to scale up these ID cards to 65 million people the next year. And this was not just to access this uh, social assistance program, but also to access the country's um, unconditional cash transfer program and conditional cash transfer program. And uh, in terms of thinking through the returns, to the extent that the scale-up had similar effects to the version that was tested in the RCT, the one-year returns are $69 million in additional subsidy going to low-income families. And comparing that to the cost of the scale-up, it's about four times the cost of the scale-up and about 69 times the cost of the evaluation, and those are just the one-year returns. So this is obviously... Um, seems like the ideal scenario. This is not how it always happens, but I think two things that really helped make this a success was that, one, we had been working in close partnership with uh, government bodies in Indonesia for a long period of time, and we were on the ground when this policy window arose. And two, the Australian government, who had... who had and continues to support um, our Southeast Asia office, made a, fun, a research fund available for policy windows just like these. You don't, you don't know how to predict when these are going to come up, but an important decision maker says, I want to base something on evidence rather than just assumptions, and can you help me do it? Uh, they had made a a pot of research funds available just for those such opportunities, and without that, we wouldn't have um, been able to inform this policy decision. So uh, this next example is from India, and it's from MG and REGS, that national workfare program that I discussed earlier, where uh, 74 million beneficiaries, but 20% of the funds is not reaching them. Uh, this is an example where we provided assistance that wasn't doing new research, was just helping them make use of research that already exists that hadn't been used. 
Uh, and this was from an RCT that uh, JPAL affiliated professors conducted with the government of Bihar in 2012, where um, this uh, Indian Administrative Services official, Santosh Matthew, was posted. Uh, he thought that a lot of the leakage in the MGN regs problem had to do with how the funds flowed from the central government to the local officials who were responsible for paying it in wages to the low-income uh, people who participated. And the way it used to work was that uh, it had to go through several layers of middlemen, creating opportunities for corruption at each step along the way, and it was available to local officials on an advanced basis. So you would report, I had 100 employees that I needed to pay wages to, when in reality you could only have 80, and you could easily pocket the difference. So he came up with an innovation that would make the money available for this program only available on a reimbursement basis, meaning that the local officials needed to enter the information of all the people who had worked for the program, their names, their information, before they could get the funds transferred from the government. And so they did an RCT of this simple funds flow reform and found that it reduced program leakages by 24%, saving the government of Bihar $6 million. So despite it being wildly successful in saving the government a lot of money, the government of Bihar did not scale it up. They did not adopt it. Uh, it wasn't a priority for them at the time, and this evidence went unused for a while. Then Santosh Matthew, who happened to be a co-author on the study um, and was previously in the government of Bihar, happened to get transferred to a high-level position within the Ministry of Rural Development at the central level in India. And he... Uh, got back in contact with J-PAL and said, I want your help to try to build momentum at the national level to scale this up. I don't think we need to do more research. I just need you to help me hire someone who can put together the slide decks, put together the policy memos, put together the technical policy implementation plan so that I can go around to my colleagues who are also high in government and convince them that this is worth doing. And so uh, this is a grant that GPI supported that was relatively inexpensive, um, about $70,000 for two years of technical assistance. And in that time, uh, Santos Matthew uh, happened upon a great opportunity where Prime Minister Modi was looking for uh, interventions uh, in e-governance or technology that could potentially reduce government leakage um, and was able to brand this reform as such. And since he had such clear evidence that it worked from a high-quality randomized control trial, uh, in 2016, the Indian cabinet said that this uh, funds flow system is going to be the way that MGN regs works in every state in the country. And at the end of uh, last year, um, 21 out of 29 states um, in India had adopted it. Uh, next, um, just quickly, I'll go through an example. In Zambia, this is another example where you don't necessarily need to do an, a new RCT in order to uh, scale up a program that's been shown to be effective. Uh, so Zambia was facing a problem that is very, very common in many, many developing countries, uh, which is that uh, uh, students at the primary school level are, are falling behind and never catching up. So for instance, in 2014 in Zambia, the government did a national assessment and found that only, uh, that 68% of second graders could not read a single word in their local language, falling greatly behind the level of reading that they're supposed to be doing for their grade level. And, 
a large, so uh, JPAL Africa uh, got the chance to meet with the Ministry of General Education in Zambia and, and shared with them a body of evidence that uh, is based on uh, a large number of RCTs from India, Kenya, Ghana, showing that targeted remedial education delivered by trained facilitators that is targeted at the level the child is already at is very effective at increasing um, increasing learning and improving basic math, literacy, and numeracy skills um, would be an approach that might be effective to try in the Zambian context. And the Zambian government was convinced by the level of evidence. They weren't convinced that it would be relevant to Zambia or that they could design a model that would be appropriate for um, Zambian public school system. So over the past two years, um, GPI has been supporting an 80-school pilot of this program uh, and monitoring whether it has worked as designed. Um, and the results have recently come out, and there's been widespread support in the schools that it's been piloted. Um, and based on the results of the pilot, the Ministry of General Education has committed to scaling it up to over 1,800 schools in the next three years. So those are all examples of a government using evidence in one policy decision. But that means the majority of policy decisions might still be based on other things like ideology or private interests or uh, political expediency. What about institutions that are trying to change the norms of how government decisions are made on, on a wider scale? And these are just two examples of how our government partners are trying to tackle that and how we've tried to support them in doing so. So in the Ministry of Education in Peru, uh, they've built something they call the Menedu Lab, which does low-cost RCTs of low-cost innovations proposed by government officials um, to improve the quality of education in the country. And it was set up with one year of technical support from us, um, but now is wholly owned and managed by the government that has many capable researchers and data scientists able to manage these RCTs themselves. Um, it has six ongoing RCTs, and they've already scaled up the um, the first one found to be effective. And we su we help support a similar initiative within the government of Tamil Nadu, which is uh, an innovation fund that encourages government officials from any department to submit an idea of an intervention that they think will solve an important problem in service delivery um, partner with JPAL affiliated researchers to test it and then commit upfront to scaling up the ones that work. And this is an example where the government has spent over $3 million of its own funds on this type of research about how to get better. And this is not unique to JPAL. JPAL is just a small, small, small part in a much larger movement of governments who I'm both in developing countries and developed countries who are making data and evidence a priority. And if you want to see how big it is, I suggest you read this great landscaping study just released recently by Results for All called, uh, that shows examples of over 100 governments around the world um, who are using data and evidence to improve the, their policy decisions. Uh, so I've talked a lot about JPAL, um, but I think there are many different pathways for EAs to get involved and work with governments. Um, obviously, there are, are opportunities for philanthropy to take on some of the risk that governments can't um, always take on. Um, but beyond that, we still need um, actors either within government or outside government, lobbying government, uh, to show them evidence of what programs are effective. And then for those special EAs who aren't so scared to go work in governments, I would highly encourage it because there are many, many re high quality research organizations within governments that are trying to improve um, policy regularly. Um, 
And I guess, in conclusion, um, I, I think we all get the logic why the potential returns to working with governments to improve their spending on uh, anti-poverty programs would be high. Um, and what I hope that my presentation has started to show is that maybe we underestimate the probability of success. And at least in j case, we've definitely underestimated the potential for governments to scale evidence-informed programs. So thanks. Thank you.